This looks like supporting our blood sugar regulation. That is dysregulated blood sugar is wildly inflammatory to the brain. So it's like good luck changing your anxiety and changing your limiting beliefs if your blood sugar is so out of sorts that you can't even like regulate your mood. If you have gut issues or poor energy levels, what should you do to heal yourself? If you're a constant people pleaser, how can you set boundaries so that you don't feel guilty? In today's episode, you're going to learn all about how to handle gut health testing and how to set boundaries so that you can take care of the most important person in your life, you. You're listening to the Best You Podcast, where we teach you the healthy habits you need to look and feel like your best you. My name is Nick Carrier, and I'm an entrepreneur and body optimization coach who has coached over 600 people through my program, The 10-Week Transformation. The 10W team makes it simple for former athletes who struggle to prioritize health and fitness to regain the confidence in their health that they once had. If this is your first time here, make sure you click the follow button on the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify so you don't miss out on any future learnings. Today's guest is Aaron Holt, or also known as the Functional Nutritionist. Aaron Holt is an integrative and functional nutritionist who blends evidence-based practices, functional lab testing, energy medicine, boundary setting, and humor for a unique and customized approach to women's health. She dives deep with women to get to the root cause of their health issues and finally gets answers to their mystery symptoms. Get ready, because today is a note-taking episode that you absolutely do not want to miss. Again, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app or on Spotify, make sure you hit the follow button. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit subscribe below as well. But for now, it's time to get closer and closer to your best you with Aaron Holt. All right, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Best You Podcast today. I am super excited to be joined by the one and only Aaron Holt. Um, Aaron, today we're going to be talking about kind of functional medicine and maybe certain types of testing that people can get done for maybe gut health, hormone health, and other types of um, other elements of health as well. But before we dive into any kind of specifics there, I do feel like one of the things that I saw you post somewhat recently is a good message to start with in that sometimes functional testing isn't necessarily the first step that you should take. Like if you're eating a bunch of processed foods, then going to get functional testing isn't isn't step number one. It's kind of like cleaning up your diet and cleaning up habits in general. And then if you feel like you're doing them regularly over a period of time and you still are not feeling right or you're still feeling off, then that's kind of the appropriate timing to maybe go get some more testing done. Um, I guess first off, do you do you have anything to expand on that? And then um, I, I guess I'll start there. Do you have anything to expand on that to kind of like to lay the foundation for the conversation? Yeah, I, I I agree with what you said because you were just basically saying what I said. So I agree yeah. with what I said earlier on Instagram. Um, functional medicine. So when I started practicing a functional approach, uh, like ten ish years ago, it like wasn't really a thing. People didn't know about it in to the degree that they know about it now. And so, anytime something becomes more popular, there's chance for it to go, you know, a little pear shaped. And that's kind of where I'm seeing functional medicine head right now. Where I want everybody to understand, functional medicine is wonderful. It provides resources that conventional medicine cannot. And I one is not better or worse than the other. There's no hierarchy here. I think we should all be able to play nice in the sandbox. I think that 
conventional medicine has its place, uh, as does a functional approach. And like the beauty happens when we can blend them both. Uh, my issue is that functional medicine is being a little misunderstood and misinterpreted because it takes a lot more than just running functional labs to be a really good functional medicine provider. It's a root cause approach. So we have to understand the root drivers in so many of our root drivers of dysfunction in the body boil down to the basics. Are you eating well? Are you hydrating your body? Are you going outside? Are you sleeping well? Uh, do you have good blood sugar balance? These are all like foundational building blocks for our health house. So if we don't have those on lock, there's not really a whole lot that a $400 like specialty lab is going to help us uncover um, without really dialing in the basics first. And I say this because people are struggling and people are suffering and functional medicine is kind of put forth as this like panacea. It is the, it is the be all end all. It's the thing that's going to save you when nothing else can. And so people are coming in and they're going to these functional medicine providers or they're going to these clinics and and they're doing thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of these really high level labs. And nobody's even had a conversation with them to ask like, Hey, what are you eating? You know, are you sleeping at night? And that's really where we have to start. Mm, I like it. So I think one of the, again, kind of to lay the foundation, I think one of the things that I've heard you talk about is the importance of being able to really be in tune with our body and, and know how to listen to our body and to let it provide us with, with certain pieces of feedback. How can we really accurately be able to listen to our bodies? Cause I think a lot of people have a, have certain relationship with how their body is feeling. That is maybe somewhat inaccurate based off of whatever. So how can we accurately listen to our body so that it can give us feedback that is useful? Well, the first thing is practice and it's patience and it's spending time returning to yourself time and time and time again. It's like the, the person who's like, well, I tried meditating once and it didn't work. It's like, well, it takes a while. Many of us have had have had adversarial relationships with our bodies where our bodies have not historically felt like a safe space for us to occupy. And that may be because we have done things to our bodies or th other things have been done to our bodies. And so we have to always make space and acknowledge that there, there's a reason why we kind of go offline or lose that uh, communication with our body. And reestablishing that line of communication is a practice. It takes time. So you have to continuously come back, continuously build that self-trust by returning to yourself. You don't abandon yourself or go dark on yourself or ghost yourself in your time of need, you know? So that's a really important thing to understand. But in, let's say, you know, using food as an example, how do we trust ourselves with knowing how to feed ourselves? Because that's pretty important. Give yourself the benefit of starting with a framework and then figure out how you feel in response to what you're doing. So like people will be like, how many grams of protein do I need? What should I eat for breakfast? Should I intermittent fast? How many carbs do I need in this section of my cycle? And it's like, well, I, you, I don't know. Try, try, <laughs> try it out and see how you feel. So there's like some metrics that we can kind of work through. I mean, we've be all become like super obsessed with, external metrics and external data points. Like we all have the CGMs, we have the HRVs, we have the cycle trackers, we have the food sensitivity test. Like we have all the external data points based on my 
point of view, like what I'm seeing with my clients and what I'm seeing with people is like, that hasn't brought us any closer to understanding ourselves. In fact, in a lot of cases, it's taken us further away because we're hyper reliant on X data points versus internal data points of like, how am I feeling? So anytime you try something new, whether it's like a cold plunge or a new diet, the there's some things that you want to look into. Like, what is my energy like? Does it improve my energy? Does it make it worse? Um, do I feel more energized or less? How is my sleep? Am I, is it improving my sleep? So a lot of women will attempt intermittent fasting, for example, and they notice that their sleep just like goes in the gutter. So it like, it, it puts, puts menstruating women into such a stress response that we kind of lose our ability to sleep appropriately. Um, exercise endurance. Do you feel good during your exercise? Do you feel good after you exercise? What is your recovery like? What is your motivation like? So all of these things are things we can do to track. How about your mood? You know, do you feel happy? Do you feel sad? Do you feel anxious? These are all the internal data points that I'm talking about. It's like how our bodies are responding. And this stuff doesn't just happen overnight. It's not just like, oh, I asked myself one, I did one check-in and now I have all of the answers. It takes time and uh, we have to have some patience, which, you know, historically we're not very good at when it comes to new habits. Yeah, no, we definitely are not. And I, I like how you said you. we kind of need to follow a framework. We need to follow something first and then be able to observe ourselves and how we respond to that framework. But I think kind of, kind of as you mentioned so many times, because we're impatient, we bounce around from trying this framework, trying that framework, trying that framework, trying that framework. And I think oftentimes some, one framework might work, but it, you don't do it for long enough and then you cut, try a completely under other extreme framework that those two are very competing. And so you're doing yourself a bunch of uh, a huge disservice by trying competing frameworks because a lot of frameworks can work, but they work for different people and for different reasons and they don't work in conjunction with each other. I'm sure it's person by person, but when somebody comes to you and they're all out of whack, maybe they've tried one extreme framework, another extreme framework. How do you kind of bring them back to center to try maybe a framework that allows them to feel like they have confidence in where to move next? Well, this is kind of a cheat answer because I've been doing this work for a long time. So I've built out my own frameworks so I can just, you know, be like, try this. I have programs and nutrition programs and functional medicine programs that gives somebody like a starter point. Um, so that is my little, little cheat answer. But um it, and I want to say that like what you said is so bang on. It's that we kind of like, we like pendulum swing and we like framework hop. We're like, okay, I did that for two weeks. I didn't see results. I'm going to hop over here and then I'm going to hop over here. And so we, in our head, we start collecting evidence that like nothing works for me when it's like, does it not work for you? Or did you just not give yourself enough a space and time to see how your body really responds. Because when we start building up evidence that nothing works for me, and then we start believing that nothing works for me, that's a really defeatist attitude to have about our health. Like it feels really hopeless. It feels like despair. And that's, that is the, the hole that I have to like dig a lot of people out of is like, mm. I've tried everything. I've tried, I've tried it all. I've done it all. Nothing works for me. And it's like, well, maybe we just need a different approach. Maybe we just need a, like a different attitude to bring to a similar framework that you've already tried. Um, and so that that is very individualized based on somebody's starting point. Um, one of the things that 
really skillful practitioners should have the capacity to do is to sit with somebody and to listen. Um, I think that having an intake, uh, like the, the intake appointment is one of the most important uh, parts of building a relationship with a client because you get to ask so many questions. And it's these questions and then actually listening to the answer and sometimes hearing the words that they're not even saying. This is what allows me to witness some of their healing opportunities, whether those healing opportunities are more physiological or even like psychological. Where do we mm -hmm. have to start? Um, and that's so, so, so different for every single person. Yeah. I'm curious in your experience, what, I mean, I'm physical and mental while they are talked about sometimes separately, they, they're not really separate. Everything is, is integrated, the physical and the mental. Um, so this is almost an inaccurate question to an extent, but when you're talking with people, what percentage, I know, again, it's, it's hard to say, and they're not binary topics, but what, if you had to say like a percentage of people are off physically or off mentally, like, how would you kind of break that down with your experience? That's a, that's a hard one. Um, and I think it probably depends like the week that you ask me, right. I think, <laughs> like it depends. Um, our, so if we're talking about a root cause, right? Like what is the root cause of our health imbalances? A real root cause is our beliefs. What do we believe about ourselves? What do we believe about health and healing? What do we believe uh, to be true about our capacity to heal? That is really going to influence so much. And so I do a lot of like belief work, um, subconscious reprogramming and like brain rewiring with my clients, like out of necessity, if we have the belief that we can't heal or we have a uh, self-identity that I am hopeless or that I've tried everything and nothing has worked, we have to start to unpack some of those beliefs and create a new identity. And also, so like that, you know, what I'm talking about is like neuroplasticity. That's like, a, you know, like the, the fancy way of saying it. And I think at this point, we're all hip to that game. But what's not as uh, discussed as much is that any type of inflammation in the body or in the brain can really prevent um, our brain from changing. Our brain is plastic. It's rewirable. It's malleable. We can change it. Uh, but if we have inflammation, neuroinflammation, that can actually block our ability to change. And so in these scenarios, we actually do kind of have to hit it from the ground up. I like to take a top-down approach, but we also have to take a bottom-up approach. So this looks like an anti-inflammatory diet. This looks like supporting the, the gut-brain axis. This looks like supporting our blood sugar regulation. That is, dysregulated blood sugar is wildly inflammatory to the brain. So it's like, good luck changing your anxiety and changing your limiting beliefs if you're your blood sugar is so out of sorts that you can't even like regulate your mood. So it's, you know, the answer is both, I guess. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> like if you're only hitting it from one side of the equation, it's probably not going to be like long-term sustainable results. Like you kind of have to hit it from both angles in order to like really lock in that change. Yeah. hundred percent. No, I mean, definitely agree with that and, and love all that. I kind of want to dive into some of the specific testing, I guess, to starting off with gut issues, how would somebody know if they have a gut issue or if doing some sort of gut testing would be appropriate for them? And then if they do figure out that I do have some sort of gut issue, then what kind of testing would I get? Okay. So 
you know, some people listening are like, I know I have a gut issue. <laughs> like they're like, uh, I'm running to the bathroom or like, I haven't pooped in four days. I know I have a gut issue. So yeah. some of it is like very obvious, right? Heartburn, acid reflux, bloating, belching, constipation, diarrhea, uh, inability to tolerate fats. All of this is like pretty obvious. Like I've got a, I've got a gut issue. I've got a digestion issue. Um, but some of the things are not so obvious. This is like skin issues, things like eczema or acne or psoriasis, um, random joints and pains, just kind of like unchecked inflammation, aches, pains, um, like swollen limbs that can all be indicative of gut, uh, issues, um, cognition and brain fog. If there's inflammation in the gut that that can travel up to the brain. So, you know, if you have ongoing unchecked random health stuff popping up all of the time, it's kind of a safe assumption to say like, there's probably something going on in your gut since it influences so much of our health from top to tail in terms of like the testing to do, there's a lot of different options. You know, the first place, I like to get started is like making sure people are doing the basics, kind of like what we were saying at the start of this. Like if you're eating a diet high in processed foods, do you really need a $400 stool test to be like, yep, got to change your diet. All right. You know, like yeah. maybe, you know, sometimes when I'm, whenever I'm thinking like, should I run labs on this person? I always ask myself, will the data change the intervention? So having more data, will that help me with their intervention mm. and, or, Will the data motivate motivate behavior change? Because sometimes people know that they have to change, but it's like seeing the hard facts on paper is the thing that actually gets them to do the thing that they know they've needed to do. So in both of those situations, it, it makes sense to invest in, in lab testing because you're going to get some good results on the other side of it. So in, in regards to specific tests uh, for GI stuff, one test that I really like is a gluten sensitivity test. So the one that I run, it looks at gluten sensitivity markers. It looks at wheat sensitivity markers. It looks at celiac, and it also looks at um, leaky gut or intestinal permeability. So it, this, this lab does a lot of different things. And that's a good starting point, especially if somebody has ongoing issues, like I talked about earlier, like skin stuff, inflammation, GI issues, because uh, gluten can sometimes be the culprit. And it's really good information to have to at least rule that out. So that's one that I like um, and that I we, we run, run pretty regularly. Another one is a stool test. And so this is looking more at the microbiome. So this would be looking at the bacteria and the stuff going on in our colon. Our digestive tube is is from mouth to butt. So this is looking at like the end of the digestion, um, the digestive tract. There's a lot we can do for interventions before we get there. But again, if somebody has these like ongoing health challenges, we kind of want to figure out, hmm, is there something going on with your bacteria where maybe you're not, you know, you're not, you don't have enough good bacteria or you are, have some dysbiotic or even pathogenic bacteria. Cause that's something that we're going to want to address. So a stool test is another one that we run pretty regularly. I'll pause there to see if you have any follow-up questions. Yeah, for sure. I think the first question is on the gluten sensitivity test. If somebody takes that and they're getting feedback with regards to their level of leaky gut or intestinal permeability, essentially, again, you're, you have a gut lining. And if to try to try to simplify it, if you have more bad bacteria than good bacteria, the bad bacteria are kind of like eating away at your gut lining. Therefore, making your intestinal lining more permeable and allowing excess 
unwanted things to go out into the bloodstream and, and cause inflammation and, and cause problems. How exactly does the test report back to you intestinal permeability? Is there like a percentage of intestinal permeability? Like what does this test actually look like with regard to the results? So one thing I will say, that's one driver of intestinal permeability is dysbiotic bacteria and imbalance of the bad and the good. There's probably like, I don't know, 24 different drivers of okay. leaky gut or intestinal permeability. So that's a big one. You know, that that's a, that's a real one. Um, but it, that's just one. So other things that can cause the gut to become leaky, stress, that's really overlooked in a lot of cases. And again, you don't need a $400 Dutch hormone test to be like, you're under stress. Some people need to see the data. So we run those often, but stress is a big one. Overtraining. So I think I'm talking to some athletes here, but overtraining is something that can break down the lining of the gut, uh, especially if you're not doing your due diligence to, to repair and rebuild any type of catabolic state. Cause it's like breaking things down. So those are some of the, like the big ones, uh, hormone imbalance. So if you're not producing enough hormones, because the deal is that lining of the gut, we can rebuild it and we are always rebuilding it. It's like our Wolverine superpower. It's like, we can just like rebuild and repair like on the fly. Every few days we're turning those cells over. Um, but if we are, if we don't have like the, the tools, like the foundations to build those back up, we're tearing down our wall faster than we're building it up. So we're going to have like a sh pretty shoddy barrier system. And so we need like appropriate hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, thyroid hormone in order to build up the lining of the gut. So the point is, there's a lot of different things that can contribute to that. In terms of what we're looking for, one marker marker is zonulin that we can see if that's elevated. Uh, that can sometimes be indicative of leaky gut. Um, it's pretty common to see that elevated. Uh, consuming gluten can drive that up in a lot of people too. So it might just mean like, hey, you've got exposed to gluten. But there's different types of antibodies. One of them is called actin antibody or anti-actin antibody. And when this is elevated, that can also be signs that there's destruction of the cells uh, that line the gut. And then I'm sure there might be like certain, if, of those couple of things, you mentioned zonulin, you mentioned actin, if they, if those are elevated, it might be a sign of leaky gut. Does it give you a degree of elevation? And basically like, if it tells you, okay, your gut lining is shredded, super, like super permeable, like destroyed. How long does it take for somebody who is just like has mild intestinal permeability versus severe intestinal permeability? How long might it might might it take for somebody to build back the health of their gut lining? Obviously, it depends on their adherence to whatever protocol it is that you might put them on. But generally speaking, how long might it take for somebody who has limited permeability to maximal permeability, for lack of knowing the better terms? Um, there's, so there's like two different types of leaky gut. There's transcellular and there's intracellular. And so that's like the, it's, is there, it, are things slipping in between the cracks, like in between the cells, or is there actual destruction of the cell where like mm -hmm. things are crashing through? And so the second one tends to be the mo the more severe, um, so we're looking at different data on the lab test to figure out like, which, what are we working with here? Um, how quickly we can repair and regenerate the lining of the gut 100% depends on the drivers of the leaky gut. That's why I spend some time being like, Hey, I, I have, uh, I think we have absolutely oversimplified leaky gut. 
Um, I think leaky gut protocols are lazy that you can, you can slap all the L-glutamine on your gut as, as much as you want. Like that's not going to reverse unless you understand the driver. What is the actual root cause? Is it your diet? Is it gluten? Is it stress? Is it overtraining? Are you undersleeping? Are you getting exposed to certain, uh, toxicants and chemicals, certain uh, plasticizers can also like undo the lining of the gut. So what is it? How do we figure that out? There's not always a lab test to figure out the driver. Sometimes it's based on dialogue and figuring, you know, like talking to somebody and figuring that out. So we have to like understand what's breaking down the gut. And then we have to kind of repair that. You know, sometimes it's like having hard conversations in our life and setting boundaries and, you know, creating time and space for us to heal. So it's not as simple as like, oh, you've got the leaky gut. I've got the five-step protocol. In two months, you're going to be smooth sailing. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Like if it's just like, hey, I'm eating gluten and that's why my gut is leaky. I'm going to remove the gluten. And like, you know, like, Three months down the road, my gut's going to be a lot healthier and stronger. Uh, sometimes it's as simple as that. I love those hero cases, but usually um, health is a little bit more complex than that. Yeah, no doubt. That's been great. That's been super extensive information on that, and I think a lot of people are hopefully are taking notes and getting a lot of, a lot from this. Now let's talk. Let's talk about the stool test. What does that tell you that the gluten sensitivity test might not tell you? Great question. So they're like, they're looking at two completely different things. So the gluten sensitivity test is looking at your immune, your immune system's reaction to any of the proteins within wheat. So some of the gluten proteins and some of the non-gluten proteins and like, is your immune system launching an attack against these proteins? Cause you know, that's not ideal. We don't want our immune system to like fight off the food that we're eating. It's not a great scenario. So that's one of the things that it's looking at. We had already talked about like ad nauseum, the degree of, of intestinal permeability. So stool test isn't looking at those things. A stool test is really looking at the bacteria um, that you have in your gut. So it's looking at pathogenic bacteria. These are bacteria that, you know, cause problems. They are the pathogens. Things like um, Campylobacter, Bacter or uh, Salmonella, that you know, like C. diff, things that we've all heard of. They're also looking at opportunists. So these are bacteria that aren't necessarily going to cause a ruckus unless they have the opportunity to overgrow. So this would be something like a candida, which is not a bacteria, it's a yeast, but a candida is an opportunist. We all have candida yeasts in our guts. Not a problem unless it we, it gets the opportunity to kind of overgrow. Um, so we're looking at those, and that helps us to determine, okay, where's the intervention? Do we need to address these using antimicrobials? Uh, do we need to kind of knock back some of these opportunists, these pathogens? We're also looking at the good bacteria there, the healthy, the beneficial bacteria. A lot of people have low healthy bacteria. Uh, beneficial bacteria. So we have to kind of take effort to, to rebuild those and repair them. Um, depending on the stool test, we can also see other markers for digestive capacity. So we can see, are you producing enough digestive enzymes? We can see uh, levels of inflammation through calprotectin. Um, we can see, kind of get a lot of different, we can kind of get a beat on the environment that's happening at the level of the microbiome and the colon. And so that helps us to guide our treatment strategy. With with really both these tests, but I guess maybe maybe just the stool stool one for this question, the stool test. How much of a stool test is it a picture of your state of your state of digestive health in that moment versus the last 
three months, right? Like is, if I take a stool test after eating like crap for a weekend, am I going to get um, a result that is really bad because I ate like crap for the weekend? Or is it more like going to tell your habits over the last few months? So this is kind of like the million dollar question, and there's a tremendous amount of controversy and disagreement around this. So I can speak to my experience. Um, you know, not all of these functional labs are validated. Some of them are very new um, in functional medicine. We like to adopt the newness, but it's, you know, it's not always validated. So I, I want to like say that out loud. Now, given that I've been running uh, the GI map stool test, which is from a company called Diagnostic Solutions. So that's what we use, um, me and uh, the practitioners in my practice. And it's been about seven years, give or take, that I've been using that. So we've seen hundreds of clients with this. So it gives me like a, a decent population size to be like, I have actually found good utility with this test. Uh, I'm always open to my mind being changed. I'm always open to seeing things in a new way, but so far so good with this test. I've had good experience. I've been able to help people get better and feel better with, with the results there, but it's an imperfect test as all labs are. You know, anybody who's telling you that a lab is perfect is probably trying to sell you that lab. So it is like all lab markers. It's kind of like a snapshot in time. With that said, I have taken, not me personally, we've sent them to the lab. Sometimes people are like, do you receive my poop? And I'm like, I do not, sir. I do not receive your <laughs> stool at my house. It goes to the lab. But we've taken um, we've taken uh, multiple samples from the same stool sample and shipped them off. And we've seen the same results come back. Mm -hmm. So it really is telling us, you know, it's a snapshot in time, but it can be indicative of what's going on overall. You know, so like I recently um, had H. pylori in my own stool test. I ran it multiple times. H. pylori kept coming back positive, but I'm like, okay, we're, we're going to treat this one. So um, hopefully that, that kind of answered. Yeah, no, for sure. It's like, it's like, it, it, it depends, but your um, your experience shows that it's a pretty good evidence of kind of like your general level of digestive health rather than just like if you had a bad uh, bad weekend of unhealthy eating and stuff like that. So that was that was definitely helpful. Um, before we wrap things up, I want to get I want to talk just a little bit about cortisol because I know that so many people listening to this suffer with stress, all different kinds of stress, like people who are listening to the podcast are high achievers. They have high standards for themselves. They expect a lot of themselves, therefore putting themselves under a lot of pressure and probably have level cortisol that is maybe really high, really low at times. Talk to us about who should maybe get a cortisol test, what it tells you, and how you can maybe navigate your future habits after seeing the feedback from the cortisol test again maybe like who should get it and what it really what it really tells you okay so let's talk about different ways to test cortisol just so everyone like feels confident with that you can yeah. do lab i mean sorry blood work that can't, so if you went to your doctor right your primary care physician you're like test my cortisol that would they would do test that through blood so the kind of like the the wonky thing about this is that 
cortisol is on a diurnal pattern. So it should be really high in the morning or, you know, like high in the morning, and then it should slowly taper off throughout the course of the day. Um, I've heard it referred to that cortisol and melatonin or like the sun and the moon. So as cortisol is taping off, tapering off, we've got melatonin that's kind of mounting. So it's like, at what point in the day are you testing cortisol and like, what's the, what's the context, you know, like how, what's the framework for that? So I don't really love a blood cortisol test. It doesn't really show us a ton. The next option is a saliva test. And so this is looking at free cortisol levels. So when you're doing this, it's not crazy expensive. It's more expensive than blood, but it's going to give you more information. It's usually about a hundred, 150 bucks to do, uh, uh, salivary cortisol. So you're looking first thing in the morning, you're looking midday, you're looking at the end of the day. The saliv uh, salivary test also will look usually look for DHEA, which is another stress hormone. So that kind of gives you more context. And then there's also saliva in dried urine. So this is um, what the Dutch test offers. So that might that's a pretty popular test. It's the hormone test that we run in, in uh, my company. And that's just going to give you a like more, more uh, data to work with. And it's going to plot out that cortisol throughout the day. You're also going to see all your sex hormones with that. You're going to see a, a, how you're detoxifying and metabolizing your hormones as well. So it gives you a lot more information for a lot more money. It's like $400 test. So those are the different ways to look at cortisol. I would say blood tests, not great unless you're trying to screen for an actual disease like Addison's. So it's not that it doesn't have utility. It's just like, what are you looking for? Now, if you are to see imbalanced cortisol, so high cortisol or low cortisol or a mismatch between free and metabolized cortisol, you know, this is going to give you some, some grist for the mill to probably make some behavior change. The last test that I run, you know, Nick, you and I have been talking for a couple of months. You know that the end of last year was very stressful for me. I did a Dutch test during that time. My cortisol levels were flatlined, like scraping the bottom of the barrel. And for me, because I do put myself in that category of like ambitious, high achieving, I push myself. I love that about myself, but it can also kind of be a pitfall as well. Seeing that was the impetus that like I needed to be like, okay, you know, like I got to cool out for a minute. I got to slow down. I got to readjust some things in my life. I got to say no to some things. And I have to really prioritize taking care of myself right now in this season of my life. So it's like, you know, a pretty expensive way to have to, to get that message. But sometimes, like I said earlier, we need that data to really like make the behavior change. So if you are somebody who knows that they're just like running themselves into the ground and just like pushing themselves and pushing some, themselves with no end in sight, it might be a good idea for you to look at your cortisol level as long as you're not just going to take that data and be like, okay, what protocol can I put on this? Like what bucket of supplements can I buy to do this? Cortisol is not a supplement game. There's adaptogens. There are certain things that you can do to help your body adapt to stress. But if you've got low cortisol or high cortisol or imbalanced cortisol, this is a lifestyle game, my dudes. This is not a supplement game. Yeah, that was great. So high versus low cortisol, you are experiencing flatline low cortisol low cortisol levels, probably because you are working yourself and kind of like towards that burnout type stage. But I also know that I've, I also know that like, generally speaking, when you're stressed out, cortisol level, cortisol levels go high. So what's the relationship between somebody who is like constantly putting themselves under a high level of stress, but then also burning out? Is it like 
there at some points during the day, it's super high. And then at some point it just flatlines or how does that work? So kind of like the, the typical trajectory, and this is, you know, like the body isn't linear. So this is like in theory, how it can play out for sometimes for a lot of people, but it doesn't always look like this, you know, like we can't always follow the exact map for, for body, for like body and health. But essentially, if you're under a lot of stress, your cortisol is going to be high. It's a stress hormone. Um, it's you, There's like feedback loops coming down from your brain to your adrenal glands. And so you're, you're going to be pumping out a lot of cortisol. So you might see high levels of cortisol. And you can kind of like keep on, keep it on for a while in this way. So if you test your, you test your cortisol and it's high, you're like, okay, I'm like an acute stress phase of my life right now. What can happen over time is DHEA, which is another adrenal stress hormone, that can start to kind of like taper off. And DHEA, I oftentimes consider like our resiliency hormone. So like when we start to lose DHEA, it's like, ugh, we're going to be less resilient. It's that like bounce back. If you think of a rubber band, we start to like lose that bounce back. So DHEA can start to fall. And then over time, cortisol can start to fall as well. And so what had was what once a high cortisol issue has become a low cortisol issue. And usually by that point, things have been kind of cooking for a long time. There's other things that can contribute to low cortisol, um, secretory, uh, our low immune health is one of them. They can kind of go hand in hand. If you've got an ongoing chronic infection that has been not dealt with and not addressed, that can lead to low cortisol as well. So there's um, sometimes uh, thyroid health can impact cortisol. So there's other things that can impact it, but just strictly talking about stress, a high cortisol situation can eventually become a low cortisol situation. And by that point, it's usually um, more intensive to unpack that scenario. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. To kind of finish off today, I want to stay kind of on this topic because it's very, I think, personal to you in your, in your recent last few months, right? Like you were you said you were burning yourself out to a certain extent and you needed to practice self-care, give yourself a little bit more time, maybe take, step away from a few things. And I know that you also talk a lot about with your clients, like setting boundaries to make sure that you're not overdoing it. I kind of want you to just finish off today by discussing a little bit the topic of how to set boundaries, the topic of how to prioritize yourself so that you don't burn yourself out um, to a to to the complete end. So what like are like is this an audience of men or women? Because those are two different conversations. Um, it's about it's gonna be about fifty fifty really. There's probably maybe a little bit more men than women, but um, really about fifty fifty. All right. So don't shoot the messenger guys, but, um, this is just my experience and like the experience of like, I don't know, the thousands of women that I've worked with. And we do work with men too. Um, and non-binary, everybody's welcome here. I just happen to talk to a lot of women. So it's not so much of like, how do we set boundaries? It's real. The question is, why is boundary setting so challenging for us? And so historically women and, you know, other people can adopt the same mentality. We're kind of like the peacekeepers. We're kind of like the people pleasers. We're the nurturers. We are the put ourselves on the back burner -ers. And 
oftentimes setting a boundary can kind of rub up against our very identity. So if we identify as being like, I'm the person that just keeps the peace. I am not the person that rocks the boat. I don't ruffle feathers. Having to say, uh, I, you know, having to say no, having to set a boundary can really rub up against how we receive love, how we receive self-worth, how we receive value, how we receive validation. And so we're going to be a lot less inclined to do it. So I, whenever I approach any conversation about boundaries, it's not so much like, tell me the script to set the boundary. And it's more like, why we have to understand, like, why is it so hard for you? Why is it so challenging? You know, what core wounds is it rubbing up against for you? And that's going to look a little different for everybody. Um, but it's imperative. I learned how to set boundaries through my business. And I, it was because it was basically like born out of necessity. I realized that if I keep doing this, if I keep showing up for every single to every single person in the way, in the capacity that they want me to show up. If I am shape shifting myself on a daily basis to keep the peace, to keep everybody satisfied and everybody happy, the burnout rate for me is going to be really high. And if I'm burnt out, I can... I can't really help that many people. I've got a big mission, you know, like I am here to do some things. All right. So if I really want to do that, you know, I have to make sure it's my job to make sure that I'm presenting, I'm preventing burnout. It's nobody else's job. Nobody's going to run up to you and be like, oh, that extra three hours a day you needed. Here it is. It's my job to map that up. It's my job to carve that out for myself. So I started taking that job really seriously. And I started to, you know, set boundaries which is just basically like saying, hey, this is what I need. This is, I have enough self-awareness to know what I need. It's not a big deal. It's not a bad thing. And I started, you know, upholding those boundaries with really good success. People are always so afraid, especially in business. They're like, aren't you afraid that you're going to lose customers? I'm like, if my customers need me to betray myself in order for them to be a customer, they don't get to be a customer anymore. You know, like matter of fact. So uh, I think it's it's really about one self-awareness. What do I need? And that goes back to the very first conversation we had at the start of this, which is like, how do I know what I need? Well, you have to spend time with yourself. You have to check in with yourself. You have to make it a practice. You have to be devoted to yourself. You know, keep coming back, keep checking in every single day, time and time and time again. What do I need? What do I need now? What do I need now? It might look like having conversations with the people in your life. Generally speaking, the people in your life, they want you to thrive. They want you to feel good, you know? And so like, just get them on board, communicate to them what you need. And most people will, you know, will rally for you. And if they don't, it's a, it's a good opportunity for you to evaluate, is this person a good person for me to have in my life? So that's kind of my hot take on boundaries. Yeah, that was so great. That was so great. Last question. Hopefully it's simple. Um, if, if an instance comes up when you know you should either like say no or set a boundary or it's too much of a commitment... What does the internal conversation look like to yourself as a reminder of like, no, I need to make sure I have what I need? Um, oh, this is a tough one. Really making me think on my feet. Well, the first thing, like the initial thing is guilt because I don't want to let people down. And I think everybody can relate to what I just said, right? Like it's like this like guilty, like, oh, I don't, I really don't want to do this. I don't want to let somebody down. And then it is kind of like a promise and a commitment that I made to myself. And, you know, let me just say, like, I've been through the ringer with my health. I was diagnosed when my daughter was 
eight years ago when my daughter was one, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune illness and they were like, Hey, this could kill you. So like that, that shifts some priorities too. So that's like not irrelevant context. So I made a commitment and a promise to myself that I would no longer betray myself. I would no longer go dark on myself. So if there's any aspect of me that was asking for something and saying, I need this, I can, and I must prioritize that. So I made that decision a long time ago. If I make a promise to you, I'm, you know, I'm going to commit to that. So I have to give myself the same respect. And so it's kind of like coming back to that. There's these, you know, these two core essential needs. We have attachment and we have authenticity. And oftentimes they like do battle with one another. So attachment is like being part of the group. It's being part of the tribe. It's belonging. It's love. It's acceptance. Authenticity is being the author of our own story. It is honoring our own needs and our own self. And oftentimes when, when we're presented with a choice, one or the other, many of us will default into the attachment. We're just going to default into, I just want to stay part of the group because historically, you know, leaving the group meant like certain death. So this is kind of baked into our DNA, right? We, we do this for a reason. We have these feelings for a reason, but I really practice choosing myself more often than not, which doesn't mean I have to be a jerk to everybody else in my life. It doesn't mean that I don't care for everybody else in my life, but I have to set myself as a top dog priority in my life because if I don't, who will? And I also have a daughter and I really believe in modeled behavior. And this is exactly what I want to teach her. And I can't teach her just by talking about it. I have to teach her by showing her and modeling that behavior. So I guess that's the internal dialogue that goes on. It's <laughs> yeah. a, it's a long conversation. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, that was awesome. I made you think on your feet and you freaking knocked it out of the park. That was great. I know so many people are going to get so much value out of that. And people are going to can tell that, uh, hey, she's she's thought about this for a while. She's worked on it for a long time. And uh, no, those are some really great thoughts. Um, I love how you said that you made a promise to yourself that you're not going to betray yourself any longer. That was absolute gold. But you guys need to make sure you follow Aaron on Instagram at the functional nutritionist. Um, I'll make sure that's linked up in the show notes. She also has a really great podcast called the functional functional nutrition, uh, podcast as well. Um, and I'll have that linked up in the show notes. Where are the, where else should people go to learn more about you and support you? I think those are the two best places, the podcast and Instagram. Yeah. Okay, great. Awesome, Aaron. Well, you seriously did so much good for so many people today. I know a lot of people are going to get so much insight from an educational standpoint, um, insight from a behavioral standpoint. And then that last, I, I love how we finished with kind of setting boundaries and the mindset behind that and everything that was so great. Um, that's all we got today. You guys make sure you go follow Aaron on Instagram, go subscribe to her podcast, but that's all we got today. Aaron, appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Wow, I hope you took some good notes because Aaron literally showed up and delivered a freaking grand slam interview right there. If you're looking for a fitness program that can be flexible with your schedule, that focuses on nutrition and will hold you accountable so that you can regain the confidence that you once had in your health, then the virtual 10-week transformation might be right for you. Go try out the one-week free trial by going to nickcarrier.com slash free trial today. Again, nickcarrier.com slash free trial. Some of my biggest takeaways from Aaron were the following. One, get the basics down first. Dial in your nutrition, minimize alcohol, and focus on stress management. And if you feel like you're doing a pretty good job with those and you're still not getting the results that you want, then it might be time for testing. A gluten sensitivity test won't just tell you about gluten. It'll tell you about if you have leaky gut, it'll tell you about your intestinal permeability, and this will be super informative and provide you with direction on things that you can do to start improving. 
A stool test will take a look at your digestive tract and will look at the bacteria levels and provide you with information about GI issues. Chronic high levels of stress will lead to burnout. Now, that's not new information for most of us, but that's a reminder to be aware of your stress and work on managing it in a way that works best for you. That could be breath work, quiet time, or maybe it's addition by subtraction. Maybe it's removing things in your life that don't serve you. And wow, the way that she finished with setting boundaries, I thought that was so, so key. I loved how she said, I made a promise that I wouldn't betray myself anymore. That's so good, so powerful. This interview with Aaron was awesome. Make sure you hit the follow button on Apple Podcasts or on the Apple Podcasts app or on Spotify. And make sure you share the episode with a friend or family member. And most importantly, keep taking action on getting closer and closer to your best you. 